The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. The Gospel you just heard read is uh, one of the most amazing pieces of Scripture that we have, I believe. It's, uh, it's a mix, I think, of poetry and prose. There are parts of it that sound like there's something that should be sung. And the theology in it is such high theology, such a high Christology, such a high sense of who this uh, incarnate one is. Uh, that particular gospel is sometimes called the last gospel. And it's a tradition found in the Roman Catholic Church, especially before Vatican II, and in Anglo-Catholic churches as well. I first encountered it uh, while serving a church in South Dakota, Christ Church, Yankton. Uh, Christ Church is a wonderful congregation. It was my first congregation after seminary. I thought I knew a lot when I came out of seminary. <laughs> and then I encountered the traditions of a church. <laughs> and what I learned was every church has its own set of traditions, sometimes things you've never heard of before. In this particular church, uh, the way the service ended was uh, really wonderful. There was a, a star that was located high above the choir. And it was up there all year long because it would be too hard to take it down, of course. And it had white Christmas light bulbs in it. And there was a switch behind the bass section in the choir. So at the proper time, when it came time for the lights to come down in the church, 
and candlelight all around, uh, the, uh, one of the basses would turn on the star and we would sing Silent Night. And then I learned that the expectation was that the priest would go to the, to the bottom step leading into the chancel or into the choir and would read what you just heard Becky read as the last gospel. I had no idea that was done any place, but it was a tradition in this particular parish. This last gospel tradition is really interesting because it apparently started as a way of determining if a priest believed in the divinity of Christ. So the, the, the rubric was that the priest should read the last gospel at the end of the mass. And in the case of some congregations, Anglo-Catholic congregations, the priest would chant that gospel on the way to the sacristy after the service. And the reason for it was to distinguish between those clergy who believed in the divinity of Christ as opposed to those who had succumbed to the heresies that did not uh, attest to the divinity of Christ. So some have said it's like the first creedal statement of the church, a way of saying, I believe this about Jesus. It also became so popular among uh, those in uh, medieval times that they would sometimes ask a priest to come to the home if there was someone who was ill and for the priest to read that gospel over that person as a way of praying for their healing. Well, I think all of this is to say that uh, this particular passage of uh, New Testament scripture is very important to the church. And it's especially important, I think, as a statement of who this incarnate one is. Uh, this morning, I want to draw a distinction, first of all, between how Logos was understood by philosophers versus how John describes Logos. And then also to talk a little bit about what it means for this word to become flesh among us, even in us. The philosophers of uh, John's time uh, talked about uh, the Logos, the word, as a philosophical theory. It was uh, ultimate truth, but this ultimate truth was only available to those who were truly educated, who could really attain to it. It had nothing to do with anything personal. It was intellectual. It was not something uh, that grows out of relationship, but rather out of the intellect. But what John talks about is the eternal word, the Logos, that is in relationship. First, this Logos is truth, an eternal truth to which we have access. And that's that's the big difference between the two, between this philosophical concept of something that only the most educated could have possible access to versus the truth that we have access to. Here, John says something extraordinary. The eternal truth of God is not a philosophical idea, but rather it is a person. It is the person of Jesus. And we hear that again later in John when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. I've always been struck by that because I think the church has sometimes encouraged us to seek the truth with a capital T something that is true always as an abstract. But what Jesus is talking about is a person himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. 
And I think what he was saying to his disciples and to us is that truth is found in relationship with him. And that's what's so dramatically different, I think, from the way we understand Christianity and this idea of finding this somehow this unchangeable truth out there that we seek after intellectually. Well, the second thing that I, I want to mention about this particular passage is that I think it's so important for us to see that at the heart of God's story of salvation is the reality that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a dramatic statement that must have been for those who heard it for the first time. The word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. God entered into a human body, a young, unmarried woman, and she became God's tent, God's tabernacle, God's temple. We know from the Hebrew scriptures that when the Israelites were uh, on the Exodus, you know, they were going through the desert and they go from one place to another. They had the tent of meeting and within the tent of meeting was a special place where the tabernacle was. And that's where God was present. Then later, Solomon built the temple and within the temple was the Holy of Holies. And there the tabernacle was as well. And that was where God was present. The amazing thing that we hear in this gospel and in the story of, of the birth of Jesus is that Mary becomes the temple. Mary becomes that place where God is present with us. I think it's also important for us to see that uh, God came into the world by Mary, into a world that was really very difficult. It, in fact, I think we can see from this that it was a way for God to say that I especially want to be with those who have so little or have nothing. Mary and Joseph were in a, in a terrible situation, if you think about it. They were strangers in what was supposed to have been his hometown. None of the relatives were there, apparently, to take care of them. And they ended up in what amounted to a barn with, uh, as some scholars believe, the, the cattle would be in one part of this uh, shelter. And then in the other part, the, the family would live and they could sleep there and with the animals providing some warmth uh, through the uh, uh, cold Middle Eastern nights. And sometimes it gets pretty cold there. This is the world that God chose to come into. I find that mind boggling. We would never do it that way. We would never do it that way. But God chose to come among the poor, among the needy, among homeless, among those who were without, not those who have so much. So I think that seeing this, we see something about the nature of God. But I believe also something about what God is calling us to. And that is to be present with those who find themselves in such need and to reach out to them and to help them. Our participation in this mystery of the Incarnation only begins at Christmas. For like Mary, we have been called to bring the love of God into a world that is in such need of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's justice. And Mary was called to be God-bearer. And we too are called to be God-bearers, to bear the presence of God, the presence of Christ, into this very needy world in which we live. 
just as God uses the common elements of bread and wine, and even an unmarried teenager, God can use you and me to bring good into this world. The birth of Jesus is God's grand and bold statement that God values us so much that God wanted to be with us as one of us. Emmanuel, God with us, abiding with us in a way that would not be possible other than to put on human flesh and to live in this crazy world in which we live. And sometimes I think we believe that uh, the world we live in is a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult, a lot more dangerous than the world that Jesus was born into. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think it was very complicated to live in the world they lived in. And I think there were, there were tremendous stresses on people living at that time. And God chose to come into that and be a part of it. Phillips Brooks, priest and bishop of this diocese, spoke of Christmas in this way. And I think this says most of what I want to say uh, this Christmas. Lift up yourselves to the great meaning of the day and dare to think of your humanity as something so divinely precious that it is worthy of being an offering to God. Count it a privilege to make that offering as complete as possible, keeping nothing back. And then go out to the pleasures and duties of your life, having been born anew into his divinity as he was born into our humanity on Christmas Day. May you be filled with the love, the joy of Christmas, the love and the joy of Christ with us, of God, Emmanuel. And may you go from this place committed to share all of that with the world out there. Amen.